I would ask everyone to please turn in your Bibles with me to our, our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we will be looking at Revelation chapter 20 and verses 4 to 6. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is... The first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Thus far is the reading of God's word. Well, last week, brothers and sisters, we we heard about this vision in verses one to three as John sees a, an angel who, who has come down, and he is an angel who's holding a, a key and a chain. And we're told that he, he grabs hold of the dragon, right? he grabs hold of Satan, and he binds him, and he throws him into the pit, and he shuts it, and he, and he seals it over him. And we're told that there was a singular purpose for the angel coming to do this very thing, and it was this, that Satan would not deceive the nations any longer. That was the reason for the binding. And with the binding of Satan, we see in the incredible wisdom of God then in his plan of salvation for his people. For in Genesis 3.15 we said that God lays forth his plan of salvation before the world. That's where you have the first telling of the gospel. And it's there he establishes, he says, a a people, an offspring, who will come through the the, the line of of Adam and Eve eventually to to redeem a people. And we see that in order to accomplish that, what does he do? He calls Abraham out of Ur, doesn't he? And he calls him to another land, and he, he makes a covenant with him. And he tells Abram that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Later on, that in Genesis chapter 35, we're told he blesses then in and renames Jacob. We're told, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. God then tells him, a nation and a a company of nations will come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So we see that God establishes a covenant And he establishes a covenant people. He establishes a nation in order to accomplish his great purpose, which was to bring a Savior into the world. right? To bring a Savior into time and space to redeem Abraham's spiritual seed. That is what he brought Christ into the world to do, which consists of what? Not just one nation, but but people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is the point that Paul makes, isn't it? Romans chapter 9, and reflecting upon the prospects of the promises of God failing, what does Paul say? In verse 6 of Romans 9, But it is not 
that although it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as his offspring. This is the point that Paul will make later in his letter to the Galatians. If you remember, that letter is written to, to Gentile believers. And what you have is you have Judaizers sweeping in, telling them that they have to take upon themselves Jewish rites and Jewish customs. But he's saying, essentially, you, you need to be made a Jew first before you can be a Christian. But what's Paul's message to the saints there is, don't listen to them. Right? It's through faith in Christ alone and receiving the merits of Christ that you have become children of Abraham, heirs to the promise already. This is why he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, to these Gentile believers, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. And so do we see that the, the, the children of promise was never meant to just be one people? It was never meant to just be one nation, one chosen people, one nation set apart. Right? But God allowed it for a time in order that, for the purpose that the Messiah might come about. And so during that time, what did God allow to have happen? Right? Last week we've seen that He allowed the other nations to do what? To, to be kept in darkness. He allowed the nations for a time to, to walk in their own ways, but all of that has changed with the coming of Christ. Right? All of that has changed in Christ's earthly ministry as he, as he brought the gospel to the world and tells the apostles and those who come after the apostles to declare that word to the nations. Right? We've seen last week likewise as we, as we looked at other texts, as we looked at some of the gospels, as we looked at Paul's letter to Colossae, that the same kind of language in Revelation 1, chapter 20, verses 1 and 3, is used elsewhere to describe the effect of Christ's earthly ministry. Didn't we see that? Right? In other places we were told, like Matthew 12, that, that Satan, the strong man, has been bound in the coming of Christ. Right? Remember in Luke chapter 10, we were told that Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. In Revelation 12, at the, at the triumph of the resurrection... What are we told? That, that Satan was thrown out of heaven. Colossians chapter 2, what did, the, what did the crucifixion accomplish? It disarmed Satan, we were told. All words that are synonymous with what is described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, in the binding of Satan. And so this vision then, that we looked at last week, served the purpose of then encouraging the saints. Right, encouraging them. God is saying to the saints, I have Satan on a leash. Right, he is bound. And so go forth in your missionary endeavors and proclaim the gospel. Right, making disciples of the nations, for Satan cannot stop the light of the gospel from advancing to the nations. Right, he's saying to the church that Satan cannot stop one soul who Christ died to redeem from coming to salvation. Now viewing chapter 20 in this way, I think helps us to see the, the beauty of the tapestry of Scripture that, that God has woven together from Genesis to Revelation. Right? We see now, as Revelation 20 really brings out for us, right, the, the entirety of the story of Scripture, really. Right? The whole purpose of, of Genesis 3.15 to now is revealed to us here in this vision. Right? We see why things had to be as they were under the Old Covenant. 
Right? We see why things are as they are now. Right? We see why things are going where they're going and what they shall be in the future. All of these things are unfolded now before our eyes as we see Revelation 20 verses 1 to 3 in this light. And just as last, last week's text was, was meant to encourage the first century churches there living in Asia Minor who were being persecuted by the Roman government, I want us also to see that, that those same words are meant to encourage us as well. Right? They're meant to encourage the church of every generation and every age for until Christ returns. We have the same missionary task that the saints living in the first century had. Right, to, to bring forth the, the gospel to the nations. And so Jesus likewise is saying to us, don't worry, brothers and sisters, I have Satan on a leash. Right? He, he will not be able to stop you from proclaiming the gospel and from having sinners hear the gospel and have their hearts transformed by it. Right? Just as the Father equipped the Son in His missionary task, Christ has equipped His church in ours. And so we must know that it shall never fail. But also know this, that just because we recognize something as true, just because we, we know it's right, doesn't always take away our fear or apprehension, does it? Right? Just because we know something's true doesn't always take away our fear or apprehension. I mean, think about it as, as parents. Many of us are parents here today. Think about when your children were small. And maybe you were standing in a pool and you, and you wanted them to, to hop in and so you'd hold your arms out and you'd tell them, right, jump into mom or dad's arms, wouldn't you? Now, would they jump right away? Did, it, did, did your saying, jump into my arms, all of a sudden magically take away their fear and apprehension? No. It took, it took a lot of coaxing at times, didn't it? Right? It took a lot of a reassuring for them to, to get over that fear and to jump in. And So what I want us to see in our text today is, is this vision is reassuring the church. Right? It's reassuring them. That, that because although Christ already won, although God has told the church that the advancement of the gospel will happen, it doesn't mean that it won't come at a cost. Right? It doesn't mean that, that the church is not going to suffer and be harmed during it. It's not to, 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 to tell the saints that it won't be hard during this time. And so this is why we see in this vision then today that it shifts from earth, as we looked at last week, to heaven this week. Right, it shifts from earth last week to heaven this week. It, it shows to God's people the victory of the suffering church when we die. Right, that's what we see in our text today. It, it shows the victory of the suffering church when we die. For although Satan is unable to, to spiritually harm or remove the spiritual life of those who God has set his seal upon, Right, claiming ownership over us, it, it does not mean that Satan does, doesn't still try to rally his allies to harm us and to persecute us and to slander us and even to have us physically harmed or killed. This is the same reason then why Jesus in the Gospels tells the apostles this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Right? Why does he say this? Because he knows that as the church goes forth, as they proclaim the gospel, they will be killed. Right? And now through this angelic messenger, Christ shows to all of his church why during this thousand years we are not to, to fear what Satan can do to us. Right? We are not to fear what man can do to us. Why we are not to fear earthly suffering 
Why? Because he's saying to us, all of what you're going through will be worth it in the end. Right? It will be worth it. When your life draws its last breath, when it comes to its conclusion, it will all be worth it. Right? Know that following Christ now is worth it. That serving Christ now is worth it. That worshiping Christ now is worth it. That suffering for his name now is worth it. That your exodus wanderings as the people of God here on this earth is worth it. That's what this heavenly vision is meant to show us today. And so what I want us to see this morning is really a, a twofold encouragement from our text. Right? A twofold encouragement. What we really see in our text here today is two things. We see the, the saints reigning. We see the saints reigning and we see the promise of them never again dying. Right? That's kind of a twofold encouragement that, that God gives to us in this vision. And so those are going to be our, our two points this morning. Right? Point one, the reigning church. And point two, the powerlessness of the second death over the church. Point one, the reigning church. Point two, the powerlessness of the second death over the church. And so point one, the the reigning church. Now the first question we must ask is when does this reigning occur that our text is speaking about? When does this reigning occur? So look with me please once more at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority was given to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so the the reign of the saints here in our text is during the same time that we just read about last week, that that thousand-year church age that's going on. So here we're told they're they're reigning during the thousand years. Last last week we read about the thousand years. These are the the same periods of time. And so the the reigning that's going on is is reigning that is occurring during that thousand-year period. It is reigning during then the, the gospel age, the, the church age. Secondly, then, we must answer, though, where is the location of the reigning? Right? Where is the location of the reigning during this thousand years? Now, for the premillennialist who believes that Christ is going to return prior to the millennium and set it up for a thousand years in a, in a literal earthly kingdom on, 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 the, on the world in Jerusalem, uh, they see the, the bodily resurrection of the saints having taken place and that believers here now reigning with Christ on earth. And it's at the end of the thousand years that uh, the rest of the dead or the unbeliever will, will, will be raised and then be cast into eternal judgment. Right? So the premillennialist here right, sees the reigning on earth and sees it a bodily reigning of the saints with Christ. But for many reasons, I want us to see that this this cannot be the case. It cannot be the case. And the first reason is this, because the text is abundantly clear that the reigning occurs not on earth, but in heaven. Right? The reigning occurs in heaven. Right? At the start of verse 4, John sees thrones. And it's these souls that are sitting on the thrones. Now, the word throne is used 46 times in the book of Revelation. 42 of the 46 always refer 
to thrones in heaven. Okay? 42 of the 46 always refer to thrones in heaven. Of the other four, three times it's talking about the throne of the dragon or the beast, which is really symbolic for their, their authority right here on earth. And then in, Re- in Revelation 21, in the new heavens and the new earth, it talks about Christ's throne. Right? But those are the only four occasions uh, that, that describe the throne that is not talking about a throne located in heaven. And so we see that, that these have to be heavenly thrones that the, that the saints are sitting on. A second reason, then, why we must see these thrones as being in heaven is because the text makes it abundantly clear that those who are sitting on them are not bodies but souls. Right? It is souls who are sitting upon the thrones, not bodies. Right? John says in verse 4, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. Right? He's not looking at headless bodies right, sitting on thrones on earth. But rather he sees the souls right, who are in heaven prior to having glorified bodies. Right? That is what John sees here. These are then the deceased saints who died during the thousand years. That's who John's looking at. Those who die over the course of the church age or the, or the gospel age. Right? The text here is making a distinction right, between body and soul. And so we see this. When a person dies, their body goes into the ground, but their soul goes to be with the Lord. That is what John sees in our text this morning, which also then favors our interpretation that the bodily resurrection doesn't occur until after the thousand years, and that it's one singular resurrection for all people, the the godly and the godless together. They'll be bodily resurrected at that time. Thirdly, we've seen these martyrs somewhere before, haven't we? Think about it. Where else in our text have we seen these martyrs before? How about Revelation chapter 6, verse 9? Remember, under the fifth seal, as the fifth seal is open, that there are martyrs under the altar in heaven crying out to God? And who are we told those martyrs were? Those who were killed for their testimony of Jesus. Who are the saints pictured in our text today? The souls of those who have been martyred, beheaded for their testimony of Jesus, right? who had not worshipped the beast, and who have not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. These are the same people. right? We need to see that. And then the final reason why this depicts saints in, in heaven and not on earth is because if they don't have their glorified bodies yet, if all John sees is their souls, then where is it that Christ reigns until we get our bodies? It's in heaven. Right? He reigns in heaven until he returns when we get our glorified bodies, which means what? If right now he is reigning in heaven, we too are reigning with him in heaven. Right? Our souls are, are reigning with him in heaven. And so Jesus' message then to the first century saints who refused to, to utter the word, Caesar is Lord, but who would only serve Christ and only worship God, what he's saying to them then is don't worry about those who, who have the ability to kill your body to destroy you, because as soon as they do, your soul will come to be with me in glory. Right? That's his message to them. Here you shall reign upon thrones over the entire world. Right? right now he's saying that same thing to every one of us here today as well. Right? He's saying that to the suffering church of every generation. Although you may suffer now, although your, your time now may consist in persecution, there is a better place that awaits us. 
when we die, and that is with Christ reigning in glory. Think about how encouraging that message was for, for someone like the, the saints in Pergamum. Or what was going on in Pergamum? Do you remember that it was in Pergamum that, that Antipas was put to death for his faithful witness to Christ? And so think about what this message means for them. Right? What Christ is telling them, he's saying, don't worry about Antipas. Right? Because Antipas's soul is with me in glory. Antipas right now is, is reigning with me in the heavenly places. Don't worry about Antipas. And likewise, when, when, people, um, when people try to cause you to, to feel that same persecution and suffering and perhaps even death that Antipas felt, right, do not fear. For if you endure to the bitter end, you too, like Antipas, will be with me in glory, right, reigning with me over all of the nations. But what I also want us to see is that this text doesn't just bring consolation to those who have been beheaded. Right? This text isn't meant just to encourage those who die so that we all just go out into the world trying to die so that we can be those who are spoken about in this text. But rather, it's an encouragement to all believers who endure to the end. Right? This is what is laid up for every single believer who dies during this church age, who endures faithfully to Christ and to the end. Right? That's what we read in our text. It is those who are martyred for their testimony and those who had not worshipped the beast nor received its mark. Right? This is then the victory of all of God's people. Right? This is the victory of all of God's people. Whether, brothers and sisters, you end up suffering persecution, whether you suffer slander, whether you suffer imprisonment, right? whether you lose goods or lose job for your sake, uh, for, for holding fast to, to your testimony of Christ. Um, it is not death, we need to understand, that qualifies us for this glorious living when we die, but rather it is being faithful to Christ unto death that qualifies us to, to be with Him in glory. Now, what does this reigning then consist of? Right? What does the reigning with Christ consist of? Well, we need to see that it consists in judging with Christ. Right? That's what we're told in our text, that those who sat upon the thrones had a authority to judge. Now, in Scripture, oftentimes... What is true of God is said to be true of believers. Right? We, we participate a lot in, in the actions that God does. So we are told that uh, Christ sits upon the throne. What do we do? We sit upon the throne. Right? Christ stands in Mount Zion. We stand in Mount Zion. Right? Christ judges the nations. So what do we do? We judge the nations with Christ. Which means what? That we look upon Christ's judgments uh, in, in the sin of the people, with great approval and, and perfect agreement in those judgments. We, we rejoice in them being holy and true and just and right. It is likewise a, a reigning in triumph and glory as, as victors and conquerors. Right? That is the kind of reigning we will experience in heaven. Right? Think about it. Just as Jesus died and ascended and took a seat upon the throne, what did that demonstrate? As he sat upon the throne, it demonstrated his victory over all of his enemies. And so, brothers and sisters, when we die and we take our seat upon the throne, it too demonstrates that we are more than conquerors. It demonstrates our victory over all of our enemies. And so, this is the answer to the nagging question of all the saints. The nagging question that many saints have around the world, and many of the saints had during the first century, which is this which is, 
Is there any answer when the government seems to be against us? Right? Is there, is there any answer when the world seems to be against us? Is there any answer when true Christianity seems to be shrinking in this world? And the church looks to be helpless and weak in the world. Is there any answer? Does, is God able to do anything about it? And the answer is a resounding yes. Right? The answer is a resounding yes. Even when the world kills you, right, God is able to turn that apparent defeat into victory. Right? He turns that defeat into victory. Right? Death for the believer then is not defeat, brothers and sisters. Right? Death for the believer is victory. For at death you, you take your throne upon you take your seat upon the throne with Christ, judging the nations. Now this likewise, though, ought to teach us something, shouldn't it? Because as believers, even though we oftentimes do not like to admit it, uh, we fear man, don't we? Right? We fear man oftentimes. A fear of man many times causes us not to speak up when we ought to speak up. A fear of man oftentimes causes us not to act when we ought to act so as to not be found out by the world. But I want us to see something in this, that it is not sufficient to lead a godly life in isolation. Right? It is not sufficient to lead a godly life in isolation. Right? What does Christ say about the church? We are the light of the world. Right? We are the light of the world. And so, brothers and sisters, we are to, to manifest that light before the world. We are to glorify God then at work. We are to glorify God in our homes we are to glorify God in, in every area of our life, in all of the world, for the, for the advantage and benefit of our neighbor and the church. And the fear of man should not stop us from doing this. Right? Fear of man should not stop you from doing this because we see then that the, the present suffering that, that man can cause us to experience cannot compare right, to the inexpressible glory that awaits those who die to, to go to be with the Lord. And so I say to you today, Allow this vision, allow this truth to help you in those times of fear to, to get over that hurdle, right? to, to jump over that obstacle. This leads us then to our second point, which is then the, the powerlessness of the second death over the church. The powerlessness of the second death over the church. Now there is some debate over verse 5. Please look with me there. There we read that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now, there's a lot of debate around this because, for one, the premillennialist says that, that by definition, resurrections have to be bodily. Right? By definition, res- resurrections have to be bodily. And in particular, in this text, it has to be bodily because of this. In verse 5, the resurrection of the rest who come to life, all viewpoints agree are the resurrection bodily of unbelievers. Okay? So the rest, the unbelievers, uh, at the end of the thousand years, come to life. And that's a bodily resurrection. And so what the premillennialist says is that those same words, they came to life, is used about the first resurrection in verse 4. And so, if they came to life as a bodily resurrection in verse 5, then it must likewise be a, a bodily resurrection in verse 4. Right? So that they would see at the beginning of the thousand years, it's a bodily resurrection of the saints. At the end of the thousand years, a bodily resurrection of the ungodly. And so we see that the debate is really over the character 
or the nature then of this resurrection. And so they're saying it must be the same. Now, now the argument against that right, is, a, is a bit nuanced. Right? It's, it's not as uh, an easy answer to this. Um, it's one that we have to approach carefully because they do lodge a, a, a compelling case. Um, but it's not as, as clear-cut and dry as, as some think it is. Because unlike the word throne, where you can you know, do a word study and see that it's used 46 times in the book of Revelation, you can't do that for the, the word resurrection in the book of Revelation. Because that word resurrection is only used in Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. And so you only have two examples of it within this book. On top of that, the word first before resurrection isn't used anywhere else in Scripture. It's not used in the Old Testament, and it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Right? To add on top of that even more is this, that the word for live, the word live, the Greek word behind there, zao, and the word for um, uh, resurrection, anastasis, are, are words that oftentimes can be synonymous and be talking about both physical and spiritual resurrections in the exact same immediate context. Right? We have examples of that. Turn with me to, to John chapter 5. Turn to John chapter 5. And look at, starting at verse 24 with me. John chapter 25, starting in verse 24. And look at the words life and how they're, how they're used. Right? Look at life and how it's used. And let's look at resurrection when it's referenced. Starting in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's spiritual life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That is spiritual life, a spiritual rising from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear him will live. That's spiritual life, a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual coming up from the grave. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear the voice come out, those who do good to the resurrection of life. Now, what is that? That's a bodily resurrection. And those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment, a bodily resurrection. So we see there the interchangeability of, of the words, of how we can have both a life describing a, a spiritual coming up or a spiritual resurrection at the same time. Be talking about the life and resurrection as a, as a physical being brought up. And so we see that it's not as easy, it's not as, as cut and dry here. And so I argue with many other uh, commentators and, and those of the amillennial uh, position that, that that's what is being done here in our text. That they are using these words interchangeably. And I think that we have another reason to believe that when we see that there's a correlation going on here. Right? There's, a, there's a comparison being made. Now, I don't want to lose you, so please hold on. All right? But this is a little more nuanced. The death of the believer in our text is what kind of death? 
The death of the believer in our text is a physical death, isn't it? He's talking about those who physically die. Which is what? It's of, different, it's of a different nature than the second death that our text talks about, isn't it? And so our text describes two different types of death in this passage. Right? The second death being spiritual in nature. Right? That's being a consignment to hell where you have your soul tormented forever. And so if there are, are two types of death being addressed in our text, it makes sense that there are also two types of resurrections being spoken about in our text as well. Right? That there are corresponding resurrections to the deaths. And so, and so hear, hear me out. You have a physical death, and at the time of physical death, it does what? It brings about a spiritual resurrection. Right? So the physical correlates to the spiritual. Well, the second death is what? Is spiritual, which correlates to what? A physical resurrection. So do we see that? That a physical bodily death, at the time of your physical bodily death, you are translated spiritually into glory. Now the second death, which is a spiritual death, what happens? You are bodily raised. And so we see that there are, there are corresponding realities for the believer and the unbeliever. Right? So the, the first resurrection is a bodily death and a spiritual resurrection for the unbeliever. The second death is a spiritual death and a bodily resurrection. We need to see that. There are not just two different deaths being spoken about in our text, but two different resurrections. Because what's the point of this? The point is that those who are bodily raised are not all of those who will be raised into glory. That is not the bodily resurrection that allows one to enter into glory, but it is a spiritual resurrection that does. That's the comparison here that's, that's being drawn in our text. Additionally, some, some additional arguments for, for why we are to understand it this way is this. Remember how we are to interpret Scripture. Right? We are to interpret Scripture with Scripture, aren't we? That's called the analogy of Scripture. And we likewise interpret the less clear text with the more clear text. And when we do that, we will see that this has to be a spiritual resurrection of the saints before the or during this thousand years, excuse me. And why is that? Well, because the Scriptures know of no such time in which there are two different bodily resurrections. We just read that in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Remember, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, when all who are in tombs will hear his voice come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Right? One, one general resurrection of all people. And at that time, they will go to everlasting life for everlasting torment. The same thing is actually said in Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And so we see Scripture's own testimony to us is that there is only one bodily resurrection. So the premillennials can't be right. There can't be two. That first one cannot be a bodily resurrection. Here is one final reason why I think we are not to see the first resurrection of the saints as bodily, but rather spiritual. And it's this. Ask yourselves this. When do the saints receive their glorified bodies? When do the saints receive their glorified bodies? 
What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 52 to 55? Paul says that at the last trumpet, at the last trumpet, at the return of Christ, we will receive those glorified bodies. Now earlier though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it's verse 23, what does Christ have to do before we get those glorified bodies? He has to defeat every enemy. Put them all under his feet. The last enemy being what? Being death. So I ask you this. How can believers, here in verses 5 and 6, have resurrected bodies when just a few verses later, at the end of the thousand years, Satan gathers an army that must all be killed? can't happen. Death is not yet destroyed at the beginning and here in verses 4, 5, and 6. And so it demonstrates that this first resurrection is a a spiritual resurrection because death has not yet been destroyed. Death is not destroyed until Christ returns again. It's at that time that all the dead will be raised, both believer and unbeliever, and will receive their glorified bodies. And so I want us to see this. It's because you have received the first resurrection that when your bodies are raised at the end of the thousand years, you will not then experience the second death. It is because you have experienced the first resurrection that you will not experience the second death. And rejoice, Christian, in knowing that. Rejoice in knowing that the, the power of the second death is not over you. But how could it be? How could it be? Right? We are not guilty of any sin before God by which we are to be punished. Right? Remember what Christ did for you. He, he carried away the guilt of your sin. Have you ever had something brought before your face and it's disgusted you so much you said, get that out of my face, I don't ever want to see it again? That's exactly what Christ did. Right? Christ came and He removed those things that disgusted God, that sin that disgusted God as He looked upon us, and He carried it away forever so that now when God looks upon us, He does not see that vile sin, but He sees the righteousness of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so now we can know that we rest safely in the wounds of the slain Lamb who has conquered death so that we shall not experience the second death. Right? Just like Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who that fiery furnace, those flames had no power over. Let us see this, that the eternal flames of torment have no power over you and I, for we have been delivered from death. Right? You have been brought from spiritual death to life by the gracious act of God in opening up your heart, right? granting to you faith and repentance, causing you to believe in the name of His Son. And now blessed and holy are you, Right, a kingdom of priests are you. And because of this too, likewise, you shall not suffer the second death. Because God has a purpose for you. He set you apart to be servants of God and to worship God forever in glory. As priests, He has given us access to Himself. And He calls us to an eternal life of worship and service, praising God in glory. One author writes this, that those who are the Lord's rise twice but die once. They who are not the Lord's rise once 
but die twice. See then, brothers and sisters, the need for the justifying righteousness of Christ today, now. Right? See your need for his regenerating grace now. Right? See your need for the sanctification of the Holy Spirit now. Right? See your need to reign with Christ over your enemies now. Right? See your need for, for his mercy and love in your life now. For only if you have it now shall you reign with him at death. But then also I call upon all of you to not fear, though, what, what those who oppose you can do to you. Because we see that something better awaits all who believe. And yet, even when you die, during this thousand years, it, it does not mean the end for you. Right? Remember, there's a, a bodily resurrection coming. Right? After Christ conquers death once and for all, and body and soul will be reunited again, just as God had always intended they be. A glorified body, imperishable, incorruptible, immortal, raised in power. And so take comfort, brothers and sisters, knowing this, that through sin and through natural generation, we have borne the image of the man of dust, the first Adam. But through faith and through a radical spiritual transformation by God, we know that we too one day shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Right, the second Adam, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, forever in glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it can convict us and comfort us. How it consoles us and encourages us. How it can cause us to abound in greater faith and can help anyone who is struggling with unbelief. We pray, Lord, that your word today do this very thing, that it, it strengthen us and fortify us and give us a, a confidence to, to continue to move forward in the world as the church, uh, unmoved and unafraid by what the world may do to us, knowing that glory awaits the soul of the saint who dies. And so we thank you for that reality. We thank you. Lord, for the blood of Christ who has atoned for our sins. And we, we thank you that you have called us to be priests and to serve you in glory forever. Lord, we ask this day that you would help us and fit us and prepare us for that very service. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.